and greetings, nerdos! Welcome to episode 26 of 78 episodes, 30 good ones. I am your red shirt level quality host, Oliver Rockside. 25 down, 5 to go, people. Yes, we have hit the magic mark where we are going to be talking about the best five episodes of Star Trek, the original series, in my opinion, and the worst five episodes of Star Trek, the original series. And yeah, it's a nightmare, people, but it's going to have some good side to it as well. And because we are starting off uh, our major countdown, as it were, of the top episodes and the worst episodes, who else could I have as a guest as uh, my podcasting angel on my shoulder or devil on my shoulder, depending on how you feel, she has rejoined us to tell me I'm wrong about everything because that is her role in my life. Welcome, please, and the return of Candace Lepage. Hello, Candace. Uh, hi, thank you. I I don't know how I feel about uh, being called an angel, so I guess I'll go with devil instead. Well, I was just saying angel just to be polite. <laughs> I mean, let's face it. Thank you. In, in, in the podcasting realm, you're the devil on my shoulder. So uh, I'm glad I'm glad you felt uncomfortable with me being polite. <laughs> uh, I mean, we got it. We got it. Always a good sign. Yeah. Got to keep those, uh, you know, those lines. Can't be nice to each other. No, that would just be wrong. Um of course, we're nice to each other. But one of the great things about podcasting that I have discovered is, uh, and one of the really interesting things to me, and maybe a social building exercise, if I'm going to get really deep, is that one of the great things about podcasting is that people can disagree and still have fun with it. And uh, so that's why I always appreciate when Candace shows up, because uh, even though she tells me wrong, I'm wrong a lot, it's fun and it's a great social interaction. However... Candace is here to uh, discuss the uh, fifth best episode, in my estimation, and the fifth worst episode. But we have to go back, because the last time Candace was here, we spoke about Amok Time, which we both agreed was a great episode. Um, and uh, But we forgot to talk about one thing that Candace wanted to bring up. And that was, and I know nothing about this, kids, so this is <laughs> going to be this is going to be new for me, too. She told me that Amok Time actually started something called Slash of Fiction. Now, I had heard a little bit about this, that there was a kind of a fanfic thing about, it came out of Twilight called the Omegaverse or something like that. So I kind of heard about this kind of stuff before, but not related to Star Trek. So, Candace, tell us all about Amok Time and how it influenced Slash Fiction. Yeah, so slash fiction is uh, a, a genre of fanfic that was up until sort of, you know, recently, it could have been most easily described as any time there was a gender pairing. Uh, so it was a romance and or smutty uh, sort of fanfic. And it was always a pairing of either same sex genders or as you started to see more different types of characters, uh, you would sometimes get actually like heterosexual pairings of characters who in in their sort of show are not heterosexual. So, but for, for years and years, it was just like men on men, women on women, 
Janeway and Seven of Nine is a very common slash fiction pairing. Okay. Um, there's there's lots of those sorts of things, and the whole genre of slash fiction actually started because of Star Trek and because of Kirk and Spock, because these sort of you know drabbles, these little stories about Kirk and Spock and the sexual tension between them, and you know, either building that sexual tension or some of the stories releasing that sexual tension um, were sort of called Kirk slash Spock stories. Mm. And so while probably there were certainly people before Star Trek who were probably sort of writing stories about characters that they had read that they felt should maybe be together, it wasn't really like Star Trek is really sort of a thing that kind of created a lot of what we recognize now as fandom, you know, mm-hmm. people writing into, oh, into yes, the of course. Yeah. network, people going to conventions and people writing fan fiction. And so a mock time is, is just like, as I say, it sort of launched a million fanfics, launched a million slash stories because the entire uh, point of that sort of thing is that Spock it is in Ponfar and he needs to mate to get rid of this and instead he kills Kirk and uh, death and sex are very very similar and his Ponfar goes away after he does that oh interesting so, okay so you know a lot of people see that as a like for Spock just simply the the climax of having you know killed Kirk or taken some action against Kirk was enough to stop the Ponfar. So obviously there's something there. And that, you know, becomes the launch of so many Kirk slash Spock fiction stories written by oh, fans. Interesting. So the slash is a designation of language as opposed to a slasher film. Yeah, it's just per- okay. person slash person. It's not a verb. Okay. Nope. <laughs> uh, very good. Now, that's some interesting insights there. First of all, I wonder when they built this um, Janeway bore, uh, Seven of Nine thing, they did they realize that Kate Mulgrew and Jerry Ryan hated each other? Well, that's <laughs> in, half re- in real of life. Most uh, UST, unresolved sexual tension, which is also a thing with fandom, most of that that you see on screen is actually because actors dislike each other so much, it comes across like you can just... Ah. feel the tension while you're watching it even though it's not in the text it's all subtextual because the actors actually hate each other Mm -hmm. yeah often that shows up that so it's unresolved sexual tension between Janeway and Seven of Nine because the actors actually disliked each other and so there was tension and um, it's much more fun to resolve tension I guess with sex than with death despite how Spock did it Interesting because you know it's funny. I can absolutely, I can absolutely see the Janeway um, Seven of Nine relationship because they tried to make Ch- uh, Chakotay and Seven and Nine of mm-hmm. Nine an item, and there was like zero chemistry. It was like, why are you doing this? This you just can't even imagine these two as a couple. So uh, that's interesting. Hmm. And of course, they've made Seven of Nine uh, queer in Picard. So I wonder if that's yeah. a little fan service to that genre. I don't uh, know. Probably, yeah. May, yeah, it's funny because what I what I know very little about this Omega Verse thing, but apparently it's based on sex as well, 
was it Twilight based on Twilight or was it Fifty Shades of Grey? I don't know. I have no idea. Fifty Shades of Grey was a fan started as a fanfic yes, of yes. Twilight. That's correct. Um, yes. I've never heard of anything called Omega Verse. I don't know in Twilight oh, who um, that would uh, even be a part of. A film theorist I enjoy watching on YouTube is named Lindsay Ellis, and she did a whole thing on it because she got involved in some publishing fight over it. Hmm. So that's where I kind of gleaned it from. Anyway, there is your little uh, tidbit of info about a subculture on this show. Don't Never say you don't learn anything on this show, Pete. <laughs> uh, so, yes, we wanted to follow up about that. Uh, but now we must get to it. And... Uh, Wow. Uh, The fifth worst episode of Star Trek uh, was written by Gene Roddenberry, and wow, does it show. Uh, We're going to talk a lot about this. We're very fortunate to have Candace here um, to talk about this episode and our fifth best episode as well, because I wanted to ask her a question about the the gender dynamics in uh, our fifth best episode as well. But this one we really needed her for, because in my estimation, this is Roddenberry at his worst. It just comes all the way through how much of a woman hater he was uh we of course are talking about the final episode of star trek the classic series uh it is famous for being bad but i don't think i think if you do a rewatch you'll realize how truly bad it is with if you watch it with 2023 eyes and now that we know what we know about roddenberry it is called turnabout intruder and Candace, this made me feel dirty. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I don't disagree with you. There are absolutely problems here. I I mean I don't want to be a Roddenberry apologist, uh, but I think, and because we'll talk about this a little bit more with the next episode, I think there was also just a time frame that people were in that was still very far behind on a lot of things, um, in, including gender. And uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are there are parts of this that actually, I don't want to say kind of work, but kind of like I could, I could see sort of a trans reading of this that maybe gives it, or, you know, for, for a person who is maybe trans watching it could kind of go, oh, huh, that's, that's an idea. Like, I, there are certain things about the way the um, actress, you know, portrayed her character and even the ways that, that Kirk portrayed his character that I think probably give this a little bit more okayness than, <laughs> than ickness. <laughs> oh, really? See, this is, this was my, through this whole series, I've kind of been the Roddenberry apologist in the fact that I was just saying, look, it's the sixties, it's 55 years ago this kind of sexism was kind of baked into the cake that doesn't make it right but we understand the the uh, the the ingredients back in the 60s to carry on the metaphor yeah this one to me is uh, this to me is unforgivable and we can't we can't say that this was of the time because basically what roddenberry is presenting is his personal views on women they are manipulative they are de- uh, deceptive. Uh, they are drama queens. Uh, and every kind of stereotype that the male chauvinist pig picks for women is included in this. 
there is no redeeming quality given to Janice Lester as a character in this episode. She's just this, as I said, devious, conniving shrew. He was a drama queen. And to me, that was absolutely unforgivable. Now, we must also recognize that Roddenberry knew this was the last one. This was not a situation where they got canceled in the off season. Uh, in the in the off season, they knew that this was going to be the last episode, and it was kind of like Roddenberry going, "Okay, fuck it, this is what I'm doing," and it it the episode is terrible. Shatner, we're going to talk about overacting a little a little later, uh, but boy, Shatner uh, obviously Shatner knew it was the last one as well, so he goes absolutely ape shit with the overacting. Uh, filing his nails at one point. Yes. Yeah. That part really bugged me. The filing of the nails. I was like, okay, that's ridiculous. Also, where did he get an emery board? (laughs) And why is Bones not questioning this behavior? And the only reason I'm going to give that Bones is not questioning it is because I guess Kirk regularly files his nails. And to be fair, maybe he's a bit of a pretty boy. Maybe that's something regular. But like, yeah, Bones is I'm... talking to him about his irrational behavior right. and doesn't say a thing about him filing his nails. It's funny you you notice that, Candace, because you know whenever he has his shirt off, he's certainly manscaped. So maybe he's 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 into all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, so it's just the whole episode is just it's just very. Ick. I think you kind of put the, the the word to it. For those who haven't seen it in thirty years, like me, um, I'll I'll do a, a brief recap. Our fifth best episode. I don't think it needs a recap, but I think in this particular one, if you haven't seen it in thirty years, you should. The Enterprise is called to this planet, a Camus Two, uh, with an emergency, a call that people are dying of radiation poisoning. Uh, the lead of this particular expedition is one of. Uh, Kirk's old flames. She is almost dead when uh, he arrives, and suddenly we find out it's a ruse. She's not really close to death, but she has discovered this alien doohickey that uh, basically changes people into other people. And just from if we take all the sexism out of it, this is why the episode is bad as well. Is they don't really explain what the purpose of this thing was, like what its history was, how they discovered yeah. that this is what it does. Why does it do it in the first place? Uh, again. I mean, maybe if a person who wasn't um, completely insane found it, some of those questions could have been <laughs> answered. But, but what did no. the aliens, like what did the aliens use it for? Did the aliens have two genders? Did they have three genders? Did they have four gender? I don't understand. Well, it um, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with gender. It was just literally. Again. Taking the essence of one person and putting it into a different person's body. So excellent, excellent point, uh, Candace. But that was not explained to us. <laughs> so it's poor narrative. So Kirk has his body, or and the, the personality of Doctor Lester is now in Kirk. Kirk is now in Doctor Lester. Yes, they're swapped. Freaky yes. Friday. Uh, it's Freaky Friday. Yes, but in, in a but not in a Disney way. <laughs> um, so they're transported up to the the uh, Enterprise. The whole the whole point of this scheme is that Janet Lester, who states while she is still uh, in situ, as it were, personality wise in her own body, 
states, I'd rather be dead than a woman, probably. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is a terrible, terrible sentiment. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that that's how men made women feel. But again, it it's for Roddenberry to recognize that, but then still use it as fodder in a character is also to me, a sign of the sexism involved in all of this. So they beam up, and of course, Jan Lester's big thing is that she wants to become a starship captain, which is denied her, because apparently in the 22nd century, 23rd century, whatever, 22nd century, Starfleet still does not allow female captains. Thank God we got Janeway. That's all I can say. And I very rarely said that in my life. But in this particular case, thank God. So she, the whole point of this is that she hates Kirk for breaking up with her when she was in Starfleet and uh, and is getting revenge both on Starfleet and Kirk by doing this. So she gets to be a captain. The problem is that she's not a good captain in any way. And they again, they don't show any benefits or any kind of positive qualities about Dr. Lester during this whole thing. And that kind of, that kind of, casts a whole hue over this episode didn't you find were you kind of going can they just show one positive thing about her no uh i did not i didn't have a problem with that because to me she wasn't representing women she was representing dr janet lester okay. who was a you know power hungry person who was denied you know, achieving sort of what she wanted. And, you know, it's hard to say, like, if we're just taking this at face value, her saying, um, your world of, of Starfleet captains wasn't open to me, could mean that women weren't allowed to be captains, but could also just mean that, like, you know, maybe they don't want captains to be married or or have like families or maybe like it could have been actually like a really personal thing between her and Kirk and he mm -hmm. like outright left her which he he said right so you know she she wanted power and she wanted Kirk she maybe wanted more one than than the other or she wanted them both or whatever and to me this she she was always representing herself not mm -hmm. women and she was crazy like mentally like very just gone right from her first scene at no point was she ever sane while we saw her and the doctor who was tending to her knew that and like even when we get all the way to the end he still loves her this doctor and says that he wants to help her because he has known that she has been like mentally deranged this entire time and has continued to to be with her because he loves her despite her illness. So to me watching this at no point did she did was this a, I mean sort of a comment on women, but it was a comment on women in that women are hysterical, women are emotional, uh, women are manipulative and will use their emotions to manipulate, but I didn't I didn't see her representing all women. I mean, we've even seen women in command on the original Star Trek. So, yeah, to me, this this was not so much a like really like women are terrible and shouldn't be shouldn't be in the lead. 
it was this woman has a personal vendetta, has some emotional issues, and can't do this. See, I'm going to disagree with you here, Candace, because I, I think that while you're correct, that you kind of viewed it as that you took it as the character's um, issues as, a, as opposed to a larger issue. I think Roddenberry did, was using Janet Lester to represent all women. Um, there's no Uhura in this episode. There is no Christine Chapel in this episode, his own wife at the time. Yeah, uh, it was like so. There is actually a lot of back of house reasons for a lot of those things. Okay. Um. So I actually uh, read quite a lot about the making of this episode because I was interested to know, like, how is this the last episode? What happened? Mm -hmm. And so this episode is almost one of the episodes that is most clearly documented the filming of because there's a a woman I don't remember her name, but she wrote a whole book about Star Trek, and she was on set for six of the eight days that they filmed this episode mm -hmm. and she wrote about it extensively in her book was it was it b joe trimble that could be yeah yeah but um uh, nichelle nichols had a singing uh uh engagement and so okay. could not be in this episode which is why they had a different right woman yes. lieutenant yeah. lisa which i yes. thought was hilarious i'm like lieutenant lisa like is yeah. lisa her last name or what are we doing here <laughs> um and I don't remember the reason why, but there was a there was a reason that no, actually, uh, Chapel was in it, but her hair has been returned to brown. It was no oh, longer that's blonde. Right. Yes, you're she right. was going yes. back to her natural hair, right. so she was in it. Yes, you're and, no, you're right. Yes, yeah, yeah. and the um, the fact that they they knew that this was the final episode, they found out two days, no, three days into filming mm -hmm. that they were not going to be doing anything else. That this was their final right filming so at that point it's certainly too late to like change any sort of story ideas and on top of that there were no finales per se then no there um, weren't there was no cliffhangers or anything like that yeah no. yeah so like things like that i i get and i agree like gene roddenberry definitely you know definitely has some issues i mean i, I in in reading about this i also read about another time i don't remember which episode it was but Uhura was put to, in command because everybody was off the ship mm -hmm. and he happened to be there on set. And he was like, what is going on? Like women can't run the yeah. ship. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, but you literally made your, she, it wasn't his wife at the time, but like your original show had a woman as the like number two person. Like, what did you think was going to happen if the captain <laughs> walked also away? The most, the most prolific writer outside of you that you hired yeah. for your staff was a woman. Yeah. So I, I feel like I, I, yeah, I still feel like there's a little bit more. Certainly. I think that his opinions on women were dated even for the time, mm -hmm. but I, I, I really still see this more as this particular character. Now I, I also dislike the way they've made this character to be, you know, her, her mental illness is also still very coded as feminine, yes. um, you know, and it's sort of frustrating, but even when you sort of look at the, the sort of lines about how she could have been, I think the very last one is something about, she could have been a very successful woman if only, and it's just like, if, if only what, if only she had not lost her mind, like there was still an opinion that like women can be successful. Women can, 
you know, do good science or, or, you know, good communications or lead places, if only they recognize their own sort of like stopped coveting someone else's power, I think is sort of the idea they're trying to say. Yeah, I think you're I think you're correct in all of this, Candace. I just don't think it came through on the episode. It, it just seemed like this maniacal this maniacal person who was kind of made to look like the typical woman uh, of the 60s. I think of the 60s they called it hysterical instead oh, of yeah. a mental illness. They use illness. the word, yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean I even have a note here going, "Ah, hysteria, that typical female state." Yes. <laughs> Um, instead of recognizing that she was banana pants and, and it's just kind of, that was kind of glossed over. Um, they of course put the, this other doctor in as the unrequited love who would take care of her. Again, a man has to take care of her after, after this, just the whole, then we get to the, the, the scene that we haven't talked about yet, but it should briefly just about the fact that she decides that uh, everybody is mutinying against her and decides to execute everybody. So all the men are going like Zulu and Chekhov and Scotty and Bones are all going, no, you can't do capital punishment, but it's the woman who decides to be bloodthirsty and kill everybody involved. Uh, just another little kind of sign of it. I'm going to say skip it completely. It's horrible. <laughs> Seems like can't, but and I and I think in this particular case, I think Candace's, I think you should take Candace's advice because she is speaking as someone who 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 identifies as a woman and maybe can see a little bit more than I can. Um, it, it you you seem to be you think it sucks, but it doesn't suck that bad. Can I characterize yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. like it's definitely not a good episode. Um, but you know, I've I've heard seen lots of people talking about like how it's at the very bottom. I'm like, I think there are lots of worse episodes than this. And like, I just want to return to the acting choices that both um, William Shatner and uh, God, the woman who, who plays uh, Lester. I think they made really good acting choices. Did like, you? Yeah, I do actually. And um, Kirk was definitely overacting. Like Shatner was overacting, but he was, he was overacting in a way that is unlike his other overacting. Like he was definitely effeminate, but I also don't feel like he was acting like a woman. Like I felt like he, like, you know, there's actually one part where he's, he's getting really angry at bones and yelling and he's like puffing up and puffing up. And he's like, his shoulders are so far back and his chest is so far out and his head is up and his chin is up. Like he's speaking, like like he's gotten so big to yell at Bones, and I'm like, this is it. Just and then as soon as his name is called over, you know, he has to go speak. To, like the communications person says something to him, and he has to go answer. Shatner like returns back to Shatner size, like he comes back down. I'm like, it's really interesting to me that he chose as a as a woman getting angry and defending herself that he got so much bigger and more confident looking than I've ever seen him stand. It was a really interesting choice to me. I just, I super noted that. I was like, wow, that's, that is an interesting choice. And then on the other side, the actress who, who portrayed Lester mm -hmm. when she was actually Kirk, 
think is actually the most I would I would trust that Kirk. She right. was very good, I think, playing Kirk. Um, even when she sat down in the chair for when she was being um, in the the court martial, which things got really wacky in this episode. Yes. Like we actually actually went all the way to a court martial. <laughs> but while she's sitting in the chair giving her her witness testimony, the way she sat down was very. I was like, yes, I see this choice. And she didn't sit down, you know, really like spread eagle legged, like, oh, you know, and elbows on the knees and head forward, like I'm a man and I'm taking up this much space. But she just she very much sat down in a way that was sort of like I not not in a the way that a woman would sit down, but in the way that a man who is confident but doesn't have to portray confidence would sit in a chair. These are the things I noticed because, and this is why I say from from a, a trans reading of this, I can see that people who maybe didn't feel comfortable as themselves could watch yeah. this and see the two of them in this swapped body and go, huh, is that possible? Could, could I actually do that? Could I swap bodies with someone and like be something else? Hey, Candace just came up with another fanfic idea. <laughs> this could this could be this could be you should register that register trademark Candace Lapont. Not to worry, I'm sure there's lots of that already out there. This is why I think it's great that we have Candace on the show because she noticed something that I didn't, and that was the I, I just looked at Shatner just doing full Shatner, and uh, it, it was I'm I'm glad that you picked up the nuances because I completely missed them. Uh, I will say because he also did um, act in Shakespeare before. Um, he would have a lot of experience acting as a man, acting as a woman. Yes. Because that's how Shakespeare plays were. There mm. were constant um, parts where where men in the play dressed up as a woman and then played a woman for some sort of reason in mm. the story. You know, not even not even about the fact that like men played the women's characters originally but right just actually in the narrative a male character dressed as a woman <laughs> too mm. so well it's fun you bring that up because that's a perfect segue to when we're going to now talk about which is to me the fifth greatest episode of star trek the original series and uh, one of the things we're going to talk about with this is overact uh we are going to talk about the famed and really uh, I have said, Candace, you may disagree with this. I think Wrath of Khan is the greatest Star Trek movie ever. I don't think that's a controversial statement. Um, I do also believe that Wrath of Khan is one of the greatest sci-fi movies ever made. Uh, I will stand by that. It's in, you know, Day of the, the Earth Stood Still, 2001 a space odyssey star wars you can throw it like return of the jedi not return of the jedi the no, empire, empire strikes, strikes back. back you can throw them all in there and i think that wrath of khan stands alone stands in that group as a standalone movie but of course the wrath of khan was a sequel and so we have to talk about space seed there's a number of things to talk about space seed i don't think we'll really go over the whole point uh like the whole synopsis of wrath of uh, space because i think everybody knows it but there are so, several things that i'd like to discuss with you the first thing is the fun one and you know through this series we have made fun as i just have made fun about 
uh, Shatner overacting like crazy in in and chewing scenery. Well, I make jokes about it, but when Shatner was confronted by two people who could scenery chew him out of the universe, it made Shatner look even more ridiculous. Now, one of them was his mentor at the Royal Shakespearean Company in Canada. Uh, just so everybody knows, we have a Stratford in Canada. It's not upon Avon, but we do have a Stratford, and that is where we have a Shakespearean company. Um, this is where Shatner got his start, but his mentor was Christopher Plummer. And Christopher Plummer chewed the scenery just like crazy in the undiscovered country and made Shatner's overacting look ridiculous. That was one. The other one was Ricardo Montalban. The first action that Montalban takes in this, I wonder if anybody remembers, is he does this arm thing that is just so exaggerated and so over the top. He hasn't said a word yet, really. And he does this arm stretch thing that goes into this yoga pose. And it's just so ridiculously over the top. And he's like announcing this is going to be a fun ride. Because Montauban knew how to overact and scenery chew in the right way. That's one of the remarkable things about this. Now, does he chew as much scenery here as he does in Wrath of Khan? No. But you just, you just, it's, it's kind of the, the beginnings of it. And it's just so grand. Now, I don't know how you feel about that particular thing that, that Montauban and, and Plummer's overacting and scenery chewing just blew Shatner out of the water. Yes, yes. Yes. I mean, yeah, like Wrath I totally agree with you. Wrath of Khan, yes, is one of the all-time best sci-fi films of all time. Candace, um, wow, and, rare agreement this evening. Yes. Well, I mean it's Wrath of Khan. Come I on. Know. <laughs> um and certainly it's the best Star Trek. And then oh, yeah. of course with with number six being the, you know, next best with Christopher Plummer, yeah, of yeah. course. Quoting Shakespeare, it's great. Yes. Um Yeah, like and yes, both of them. Both of those actors, Christopher Plummer and Ricardo Montalban, are so good at like this, yes, ridiculous overacting. Like there are so many times that I that I was watching Spacey as I'm re-watching it, going, Why am I not cringing at this? It's so over the top. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but he just does it so well. And this, yeah, this arm stretch thing, which of course all of the the other uh, augments as they're called, um, later on in life, Mm -hmm. later Mm -hmm. on in Star Trek history, um, all of the other augments are doing the same thing as they're all waking up. And I'm like, is this supposed to be like a Tai Chi thing? Is that what we're doing? Can we like, first of all, we have this like Spanish or, you know, whatever. I'm not actually sure exactly where Ricardo Montalban is from, but he's supposed to be playing a. Well, yes, we have to, we have to talk about this. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Montalban is Mexican. Okay. And I I just think, well, you are probably the best one to talk about this because you're up on all this kind of stuff. Um I can't even imagine a Latina a Latino playing a South Asian now without some kind of firestorm, can you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. No. <laughs> now, it would be a serious problem. Yes. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because when we look at, I mean, everybody always uses the Johnny Depp example, which I, I'm, it was a terrible choice, not only for 
being cast as Tonto, but the insensitivity of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, would, but Montauban just makes this work so well. I, I, I wonder if that would be a loss if we. Yeah, said that and he could I do mean, it. the reality is, is that at the time, I'm not sure that there were very many. No, um, you're right. Yeah. South Asian actors at all, you know, and most of them. And it's funny because every once in a while I'll watch an older film and I, I watched one recently and I don't remember what it was. It might have been Alligator. And there was a man who was playing um, like a reporter and I kept looking at him and I was like, what is this person's like nationality? Because it, there's something. And so I looked him up and he was South Asian, but because of the lighting and, you know, like the makeup, he he passed as a as a white man. But when you look at other photos of him, he's so much darker. And even uh, I'll say like um, Dr. Bashir on Voyager, mm-hmm. I I will admit that it took me a very long time to realize that he was a, a South Asian man, Southeast Asian man as well, partially because he was going by a different name for the beginning yes. of yeah. uh, uh, Deep Space Nine, I mean, as well. Um, but so there just there weren't that many. Southeast Asian actors and the ones who were the few who were were very whitewashed mm-hmm. and they were not playing characters of their own sort of nationality they were like I'm just going to take this job and we're not going to talk about you know my you know my ethnicity or anything like that I'm just going to take this job and we're going to make me up in the lighting and all the you know hair and makeup I'll just look like everybody else Mm-hmm. So I don't know that there would have been someone to play this character no, otherwise. That's a, that's a very good point. And I would say I'm glad that they at least got someone <laughs> from oh, some and... non-white nationality or non-white ethnicity to play the character. Right. And and the other thing is is Montalban just just he just hits this one out of the park because it's right up his alley. Um it's like cedary chewing uh, it's, he knows how to do it. He knows how to do it really, really well. Um, you appreciate him for the overacting <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's part, it's, it, it's necessary to the part. Just this whole episode, first of all, it goes by like a snap. There are some continuity problems, which we're about to discuss in the fact that if you remember Wrath of Khan, the one who first recognizes that the SS Botany Bay is on the planet is somebody who was not in the episode. And I must make a correction at this particular point. Sulu is not in this episode. And this is where my confusion came in. Uh, Nurse Chapel isn't in this one episode. I got confused between the two. Mm-hmm. But Chekhov is not in this episode because he wasn't even hired yet. But he is the one in Wrath of Khan who identifies the SS Botany Bay first. So there was a bit of a continuity boo-boo there. But I think you have a story that's related to this. I do. And so um, I think I've probably mentioned a number of times when I'm on the show about how dear of a man Walter Koenig is. I just love him. And um, I've seen him at conventions. I've met him a few times. He's just a lovely, lovely person. And um, believe it or not, he gets asked this question every single place that he goes because yes in in the film wrath of khan it's his ship that 
lands on uh, SETI Alpha 4, I think? Five. SETI Alpha 6? Well, SETI Alpha 5 is where they're supposed to go, but... No, the, no, the SETI Alpha 5 is where they are. Their SETI Alpha 6 is where they're supposed to go. Right, and right. And SETI Alpha 6 is blown up. So they yeah. think that... Right, yeah. Yeah. Either way, he's the one who lands, and of course, Khan recognizes him right away and begins the entire, like, great, now we're going to find Kirk for my revenge. And um, they never but met of, him, yes. Yeah, but of course, Chekhov, Walter Koenig, only starts in season two, and this yeah. is the, towards the very end of season one. Mm -hmm. So constantly, Walter Koenig gets the question about how how did Khan recognize you when you weren't there? And so... Because of this, he has fashioned this incredible story, a piece of fanfic of his own that he tells over and over and over again. And he does an amazing job of it. So I'm not going to to tell the story, um, but I will send you, Oliver, a, a copy, a YouTube clip that you can share on Twitter or wherever so that people can see what the story is. Oh, fantastic. Uh, and hear Walter say it himself because he's got it. He's got it down. He says it every time. It's hilarious every time. I rewatched it just before recording. Literally snorted, even though I've heard it before. I knew it was coming. Um, so, yes, there is a continuity error, and it has it has created this beautiful opportunity for Walter Koenig for the last thirty five years to tell the same story. Well, over that's and over again. that's fantastic, Candace. Send it over, and what I'll do is um, after the episode is uh, published, I will attach it to it uh, on our Twitter feed, so listeners can see it as well. Because I have never seen it, and I will not watch it until Candace puts it out, so we can all watch it together. Because um, I have never seen it, but that's always been a big thing. Now we have to talk about the elephant in the room, and I'm really interested to. Mm. Uh, hear your take on this. Before mm -hmm. I say this, we should point out that Gene Roddenberry had nothing to do with this episode. I mean, he he produced it, but it was not written by him. So the elephant in the room is is Marta MacGyvers, who is besotted with Khan and then becomes his protege uh, and eventually becomes his partner. Yeah. And the the key here is is whether she has been given agency in this because she seems to make her own choices. Khan seems to let her make her own choices, but there's this very ominous threat that seems to be going through all of these questions that he asks her. And so I'm I'm really interested to see how you felt about it, Candace, because is she does she have agency in this situation or is she just being bullied? Yeah, this episode gives me far more ick than than the previous episode. It it's okay for a bit and then it's really bad um when um MacGyvers goes to his quarters to apologize after the meal and he pulls out every like abusive man trick in the book and it is it's so uncomfortable to watch as he just goes through them all and essentially forces her to like bow down before him and declare her like fealty to him and 
it's yeah it's really really uncomfortable to watch and it's concerning how spot on it is on on how abusive men are it kind of makes me worry right like who wrote this who knows that this is how this works like should i be concerned that that person has like a woman tied up in their basement because this is exactly like it you know happens quite quickly obviously because it's a short episode you know i think going from being a historian to you know basically being a traitor to your entire ship <laughs> would take a little bit longer than it than it does but yeah that particular scene is really really difficult to watch it also really is one of those things where it's so clear that these you know because Khan and the rest of his his shipmates are from sort of eugenics projects that were supposed to create like uber men and uber women and you know give them all the best qualities and yet they are so manipulative and in the history they actually caused a lot of problems on earth and were you know cast out so it's sort of one of those things where it's like exactly how you know how good is he supposed to be if he's supposed to be like more intelligent because i don't think that a more intelligent superhuman would i i hope that a more intelligent superhuman wouldn't be this evil and this power hungry but so much of the episode it's sort of like exactly how smart is he supposed to be and in the end you know again sticking with this with macgyver's thing in the end she is actually sort of his folly right man's folly is always women <laughs> well it's funny you say that because at the end he calls her an an exceptional woman and a superlative woman, woman, mm -hmm. something like that at the end. Yeah. Um, a superior woman. Yeah. Superior woman. Yes. That's very interesting. Uh, it's a very interesting take. I did feel uncomfortable with part of that scene. As soon as like, at one point he basically says, if you want to stay, stay, if you want to go, go. So he's giving her somewhat of an agency to begin with. That's, then, but, that's, a, that's a trick. Okay. But then he, uh, she says, I'll stay a while. And that's, that's when it turns uncomfortable for me. Because that's then he says, that's not good enough. Well, and he was never going to let her go. Right. He, he gave her the option to stay or go so that when she stays and it's bad, she chose. Ah, uh, I see. Okay. No, that's that it's 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 so manipulative it's mm -hmm. really it was so icky mm -hmm. i was like whoa whoa that that is like straight out of the handbook of like casting blame and making her be the one who wants to stay making her be the one so it's it's a false agency but it makes her feel like she has agency and then feel like she has to, you know, because she's made that choice, she has to work to make it work. 
It's like, oh, I made the choice to stay. So now it would be my fault if everything fell apart because I, I chose to stay and I'm not working hard enough to make it work. So, okay. Understood. Do you think then Kirk make, makes her do the same thing at the end when he goes, you can be court-martialed or you can go with Khan? Is that the same type of thing that Khan did? Is Kirk manipulating her into a certain decision? Well, I mean, I don't think so, but I also, I just have a hard time anyways with Kirk's decision to just actually let Khan have exactly what he wanted. Yes. Um, which is bizarre. Um, but then we wouldn't have a sequel. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel that it was the same because he was being honest, right? This right. is what is honestly going to happen. You can honestly go or you will face a court, court martial. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he can't honestly tell her whether it would, the court martial would go poorly or well, or whether she would just, you know, lose her position but be okay or like he didn't yeah it, it there was no like sugar coating and there was no you either have a bad decision or a bad decision that's right. kind of your those are your right. options right well i candace thank you very much for that again it's an interesting analysis it was something that i was wondering about just when i rewatched it because there are moments of cringe in this episode as candace has pointed out uh, but there's also there's a glorious dinner scene where they're doing where they're they're doing the Spock Kirk Khan triangle. There's a fight scene where Khan gets defeated by what appears to be vacuum attachments. I don't know what they are, but it was yeah. like he was yeah. Um, and right up until that fight, I was just like, you know what's so great about this episode is that you really feel like the Enterprise is in trouble. Like there is real risk here. I really feel like they could lose. And then I wish that they had just come up with something better, like that they had smarted their way out of it or something. Because literally Khan says, you can't beat me. I have five times your strength. (laughs) And so Kirk goes, well, that's okay. I'll just use this supposed to be lead pipe i guess i don't know but i'm like yeah but it's still not gonna help because you still only have your normal amount of strength (laughs) yeah no you're exactly right it's like yeah i have five times your strength but now kirk is not going to beat you with his vacuum cleaners baseboard tool um it's it's yeah it's just ridiculous but it's ridiculous in a fun way i love this episode total rewatchable especially like watch this before you want if you want to do a rewatch of wrath of khan Watch this to begin with, because it'll set you whole up, all up. It's a great three hours. And while we're talking about Wrath of Khan, you know who never gets enough love about Wrath of Khan, Candace? No, who? Nick Meyer. Oh, yes. yes. Nick Meyer did number two. He did number six. Uh, yeah. Nick Meyer did a great uh, other film that's been lost to history called Time After Time with David Warner and Malcolm McDowell about H.G. Wells and, and Jack the Ripper. Great movie. Mm-hmm. Nick well, yep. Nick Meyer never gets enough love. Yes, that that is true. That's a good point. And he, yeah, he really came in and brought the whole franchise back to life. Like the first film oh, God, the first was... Adam, yeah, and I have, was... Adam and I have already had that fight. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really enjoy it. Um, but it certainly w- would not have led to, you know, six or seven more films plus like 
what, five more series now? Yeah. Six yeah. more series? I don't even know. I've yeah. lost count. Yeah. Yeah. Nicholas Meyer came in and, and did a really great job with that. And interestingly, oh my God, is it a spoiler? Is this a 30 year old spoiler with the Spock die? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's such, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's just, you know, it's one of those things too where Leonard Nimoy only said he was going to come back if he got killed. And. So they respected that. And I think that that's really, uh, that's a, that's a big deal. I think for like a director and a writer to actually respect like what the actor wants. Oh, absolutely. And respect the right actor. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, because this was all Shatner centered to begin with. And so they respected another actor who realized that he was just as important as Shatner to the series. And, uh, so that was the other thing that Nick Meyer did is he basically told, Shatner, I'm not, I'm listening to Leonard this time, not you, Um, which I think was beneficial. As we discovered with Star Trek V, when they said, Shatner, you're in charge, then we know what happened. Mm. If you've got a spare Saturday night and you've got three hours, put on Space Seed, it's on the Paramount Network in the U.S., it's on Netflix everywhere else in the world, and then watch Wrath of Khan right after it. It's perfect three hours of, of sci-fi viewing. I, I I can't recommend it more strongly. So that is number five of our of my particular opinion of uh, the greatest episodes of Star Trek, the original series, and the fifth worst. So you're about to get four worst ones, <laughs> believe it or not, and you're <laughs> really about to get four better ones. I would give Wrath of Khan nine and a half out of ten. Um, I, I'm guessing that Candace would give it around an eight and a half. Was that correct? Uh, Wrath of Khan? No, yeah. that's no, a five out of five movie, okay. man. Oh, no, 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 them, no. One I of mean, them perfect the, I mean, movies. I, I'm sorry. Space, Space Seed? Seed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Space Seed is number four on my, my list oh, okay. of top five. Of so we're not time. far off there. So, uh, you've got four worse ones, four better ones. And speaking of, uh, our next episode, which we are going to talk about the fourth best one and the fourth worst one. Doug Slater is returning. We are going to continue our argument about whether arugula should be on pizza. Uh, I am very negative over that idea. Uh, But we are still having that argument, which will continue in two weeks. Candace, thank you so much for joining me again. This This may be Candace's final appearance, but we may have Candace for a surprise appearance somewhere along the way in the next four episodes. So watch for that. Candace, thank you very much for joining me. I I love it. I <laughs> give me any reason to talk Star Trek. I'm ready. Oh, well, fantastic. You've been a, you've been a fantastic guest, and uh, really, um, one of the things I've really appreciated having you on is giving a different perspective. And uh, I think that makes not only the podcast more interesting, but I think what makes watching the series a little bit more interesting when you hear perspectives from different people. So, Candace, thanks again. Until next time, people, Doug Slater, the fourth best, the fourth worst. Until then, nerdos, toodles.